Hello, everyone. Welcome to our The Week That Was in Europe podcast. My name is Dirk Schumacher. I'm the head of European macro research at Natixis. And with me, as usual, is Klaus Adam, professor of economics at the University of Mannheim. Hello, also from my side. So today we will talk about macroeconomic forecasting at the European Central Bank. And we'll do this jointly with Oskar Arge from the ECB, who is our special guest today. Oscar is the ECB's Director General for Economics, and he's also the head of the ECB's Monetary Policy Committee, which prepares many of the decisions that are taken by the Governing Council, the main decision-making body of the ECB. Prior to coming to the ECB, Oscar was Director General for Economics and Statistics at the Bank of Spain, and he's an economist by training. In fact, he holds even two PhDs, one from the London School of Economics and one from the Universidad de Burgos in Spain. So welcome to the podcast, Oscar. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dirk. Uh, Klaus, it's, it's a real pleasure to be with uh, with uh, you uh, uh, here today and uh, more than willing to to interact uh, with uh, two very distinguished economists as you. Eh? So looking forward for uh, for the exchange. And thanks. Yeah, so let's start with uh, your current very interesting job. You are Director General for Economics and uh, naturally involved in many important activities at the ECB, one of which is uh, macroeconomic forecasting. And uh, that is what we would like to talk to you about today. So macroeconomic forecasts are currently of particular importance uh, as it is quite unclear in which direction the euro area economy is heading. On the global level, we see quite some heterogeneity in terms of growth outcomes. The United States is pulling along strongly, has surprised uh, positively. China has been largely disappointing. They sort of uh, publish good numbers, but we don't know <laughs> to what extent they can be trusted. And the euro era is somehow hanging in between a slight expansion or recession. We don't really know. Growth has been essentially zero now for more than a year, so we have a stagnating economy for the moment. So what's your assessment of the economic cycle for the euro area if you look ahead? Well, as you rightly said, uh, Klaus, uh, I mean, the euro area economy has been stagnating over the last uh, year. Uh, we avoided a uh, technical uh, recession, um, but it is uh, undeniable that uh, weak, uh, has, uh, growth has been very, very, very weak. No, I mean, looking forward, uh, I'm uh, basing this assessment on our uh, latest uh, forecasting exercise that uh, came out in, in December. We expect uh, some recovery looking uh, uh, looking forward. No, uh, this year 24 we should see some uh, positive uh, growth rates uh, already starting with uh, with the first quarter of, of this year. We don't expect a huge rebound of the euro area economy, but at least uh, we expect uh, some uh, some gradual uh, recovery. I mean, we were uh, uh, I, I would say we were right in anticipating this uh, very weak uh, growth pattern over the last uh, the last year. This was the consequence of the accumulation of, of a number of, uh, of uh, well-known shocks. But on top of that, I mean, we were implementing a significant uh, monetary policy uh, tightening, which was uh, reducing demand. No? Now, looking forward, we expect uh, real wages to uh, support uh, the recovery of uh, consumption. And this should come as the combination of two forces uh, that are... Uh, uh, are in motion. No? One is uh, robust uh, wage growth. We expect wages to keep uh, growing at uh, relatively robust uh, rates. 
Uh, and this, together with uh, falling inflation, should uh, provide some space for further uh, improvement in, in real wages and, and consumption. No? Secondly, we expect a better contribution from the external sector, as you mentioned. I mean, 23 was a very strange year. Well, the US did relatively well. China did not do so well. Uh, but overall, the exports of the euro area were quite weak, especially after uh, two years, 21 and 22, in which... Uh, our exports were quite uh, quite strong. Now, looking forward, we expect some normalization there, and we expect some positive uh, contribution uh, getting back from the from the external sector. No? And probably later in the year, uh, if the assumption that is discounted uh, by the market on some easing in our monetary policy, uh, some lower interest rates, uh, especially during the second half of the year, I'm not uh, saying that this is going to be uh, the case, no. But the, the the market is discounting that, and this is what we incorporate in our forecast. Then uh, this should uh, contribute uh, to reduce the level of uh, contraction coming from monetary policy on growth, no. So uh, contributing uh, somewhat positively to the recovery of of growth. By the way, let me let me say. Uh, that uh, these are my opinions. Eh? These are not uh, the opinions necessarily held by the ECB executive board or the governing council. Eh? So you already alluded to um, wage growth as an important uh, determinant in, in in the growth outlook for the euro area. Higher real uh, wages will will translate to higher income and therefore more consumption. But of course, there's the other side of of wages uh, when we look at inflation and i guess many governing council members have made pretty clear that this is one crucial factor looking at in terms of when and if to decide for easier monetary policy could you could you again um in, in a bit more detail explain how, how you assess the wage dynamics there's an issue about data availability and the lag um and and how important are wages in in bringing inflation back down well, yes, uh, Dirk, as, as you said, I mean, uh, wages are attracting a lot of uh, attention uh, from uh, observers, uh, but also from, from us, the, the ECB staff, uh, for very for very good reasons. No, uh, They are going to be uh, uh, the key factor in governing uh, inflation dynamics uh, in the medium in the medium term. I mean, the inflation story in the euro area in 22 and to a large extent in 23 uh, was a story based on external shocks mainly energy, but also food, bottlenecks, and, and so on. Now, looking forward, assuming that uh, we will not have uh, new shocks, but probably we will have, no? but difficult to anticipate, inflation will become uh, mainly a domestic uh, phenomenon. No? And this implies that uh, there are two variables that are going to be key. Uh, one is wages, and the other is uh, profit margins. Yeah? Quantitatively, uh, wages are typically more more relevant. Eh? They they occupy a bigger uh, part of the of the income of the of the economy, and this is why we are uh, uh, placing a special attention on on on, on wages. Now they are important for inflation uh, because they they are an important cost for uh, for firms, and they are of course important for consumption. For the argument that I mentioned before, we need some recovery of uh, of real uh, uh, wages in order to support the recovery of uh, consumption and, and aggregate demand. However, we we we, we uh, must be cautious about uh, uh, how much uh, uh, growth uh, we see in, in nominal wages, because of course too much uh, nominal uh, wage growth could uh, bring uh, some unpleasant uh, extra extra inflation. No? What we are seeing so far is that uh, yes, wages are recovering uh, from uh, relatively subdued levels. 
um, the combination of relatively strong wage growth and falling inflation uh, is generating now some recovery in the level of, of real uh, wages. Now, in terms of nominal wages, uh, what we see uh, from, from the various sources of, of data is that uh, wage growth in annual rates are still quite high. Uh, but we anticipate, let's see whether uh, this hypo hypothesis uh, gets confirmed, that uh, wage growth will gradually stabilize and eventually will go back to levels that uh, will be consistent with uh, headline inflation going back to 2% sometime in the second half of, of next uh, year. We are facing, as you hinted out, uh, Dirk, uh, we are facing some challenges there in terms of uh, availability on, on, wage, uh, on wage data. Because we rely on a relatively wide uh, uh, set of sources of, of data, the official data are, are of course very very important, but they they only come with some some delay. No, let me just mention an example here. We will only get the information about uh, the official uh, data for uh, for wages for the compensation per employee, which is the technical uh, name in the national accounts, and the information on the corporate profits for the fourth quarter of last year the day after the coming March Governing Council meeting. So we face some important delays there. No? Facing uh, this, uh, these problems uh, in the euro system, and thanks to uh, the specific input of some, of some uh, ECB and National Central Bank colleagues, uh, we have built up a, a very useful collective euro system enterprise, which we call uh, the wage tracker, that essentially collects almost in real time the outcome of uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, wage uh, collective agreements across the the euro area with a very high uh, coverage. Actually, we have uh, uh, an important proportion of, of the workers in the euro area covered by, by our wage tracker. And this allows us to get a more timely signal about uh, what's going on in, in terms of uh, negotiated uh, uh, wages. And it works as a good uh, predictor. No? Actually, this... this uh, this uh, this uh, data play a very very important role in the in the discussions of the of the governing council, and to increase the robustness of our judgment and assessment of uh, wage dynamics, because as I said, it's absolutely crucial both for the nominal side of the economy but also for growth. We also rely very much on some uh, on some surveys eh, uh, that we conduct uh, regularly uh, uh, on uh, uh, firms' decisions, on households, and and so on. So, uh, yes, critical for us, and we try to be as much robust as possible, uh, relying on all available sources of information about uh, wage dynamics. You, you you said indirectly that there is a Goldilocks wage growth. We want some wage growth because we want real income to pick up for the economy to recover and, and not face, again, a recessionary threats. At the same time, too much uh, is easily too much of a good thing. W would you venture some some range where you would feel okay that's a good uh, uh nominal wage growth uh, that that's within the the range we deem neither too strong nor too weak well what we have in our uh, baseline scenario the latest uh, forecast in in december would be consistent with uh, something uh, close to this notion of a virtuous uh, equilibrium you knowing which uh, we, we we have uh, both uh, the recovery of uh, of uh, of consumption and the recovery of some uh, economic growth uh, uh, in the coming uh, quarters, uh, together with some gradual convergence to to two percent. No, this is an assumption. It has to be materialized. Now, what I can tell you is that uh, so far, what uh, we are seeing uh, through the wage tracker and other uh, wage uh, signals 
is uh, broadly consistent with this uh, with this path. Okay? Uh, crucially, this uh, adjustment in wages will be compatible with inflation going back to 2% as long as uh, unit profits uh, uh, on the side of the corporates moderate. Okay? This is a critical assumption. This is the only way of uh, making a 4 point something percent increase in uh, compensation per employee, which is expected for, for this year, compatible with inflation going down. The key, the key element there is that unit profits will compress as well. And again, here, what we have seen uh, in the last uh, uh, quarters is, is uh, fully consistent eh, with, uh, with this assumption. Unit profits are uh, moderating after some uh, significant increases, in, especially in 2022. So, so far, what we are seeing is consistent with the kind of uh, delicate virtuous equilibrium that we were uh, uh, mentioning. No? In terms of uh, ranges, uh, Dirk, we typically, uh, the ECB staff, uh, we typically provide the governing council with some uh, alternative scenarios on the evolution of some key variables. And especially, this includes the evolution of wages and profits. So, we typically tell them not only what is our baseline scenario, but we offer them some alternative scenarios, ranges, if you wish, uh, with a stronger or weaker uh, wage growth and uh, provide them with some uh, implications no, in terms of uh, inflation dynamics and, and so on. So, um, yes, we take a lot of uh, care on this uh, and we continuously challenge ourselves, no, our baseline, no, uh, thinking about some other potential uh, alternative uh, scenarios. But if I can summarize the whole thing, what we are seeing so far, uh, is broadly consistent what would uh, we have uh, anticipated in our latest uh, forecast. Very interesting. <clears throat> now let's uh, move a little bit away from uh, the outlook and uh, look a little back. Uh, we know that forecasting is uh, clearly a difficult task and it's it's quite normal that the outcomes can be substantially away from the forecasts and uh, essentially this can happen for two reasons. Uh, number one, there could be unpredictable events that have taken place after the time of forecasting. And number two, that perhaps at the time of forecasting, there was some information that wasn't interpreted in the way it should have been or could have been. So if you now look back at the ECB's own track record in terms of forecasting over the past few years, including the recent inflation surge, what is it that you could potentially learn from these forecasting errors in terms of where they came from and perhaps also where opportunities are for improvement perhaps? Well, actually, uh, Klaus, uh, it's not just a hypothetical question because we do uh, perform this, this exercise. No? Uh, over the last uh, three years, uh, we have been uh, doing this exercise in a systemic, uh, systematic way, asking ourselves uh, uh, what was the error in our projections for growth and, and inflation and uh, what were the factors eh, behind this, these errors, whether a lack of information, unexpected shocks or even uh, incorrect uh, judgment eh, as well. And what is important, and uh, I'm constantly pushing for this, is that uh, we are transparent on this. And indeed, uh, in the last two years, we published, uh, I think it was a box uh, in the economic uh, bulletin, uh, explaining the magnitude and the main determinants of our forecasting errors. Yeah? And we plan to do this uh, again uh, this year, probably in the coming weeks, uh, you will find 
the new exercise uh, covering the the analysis of the errors of the last uh, of the last year let me summarize uh, especially in terms of of, of inflation no? and what was behind our errors no? Uh, in uh, 21 and, and, and most part of 22, uh, an important uh, component of the error on, on inflation uh, came from uh, the shock on uh, oil and especially gas prices. Yeah. So this was very difficult to, 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 to anticipate. It was for us, I mean, it was impossible to anticipate that uh, the war in, in, in Ukraine would uh, be so, uh, so uh, lengthy. Um, uh, all these uh, bottlenecks in international trade uh, came in terms of intensity also as a as an unpleasant surprise. So uh, it was mainly a story about uh, shocks, mostly on on on, on energy, but uh, uh, it was a story about uh, un uh, unexpected uh, shocks. Later on, uh, we started to uh, make some some errors, especially in the second half of 22, not uh, just in terms of the evolution of wholesale gas prices or uh, oil prices, but it became increasingly difficult for our experts to uh, estimate correctly the intensity and the velocity of the transmission of the uh, wholesale prices into the uh, energy bills paid by uh, firms and, and households. Uh, and here we uh, were confronted with a question that uh, had never been relevant in the past, no? which had to do with uh, a lot of heterogeneity across the many countries of the euro area in terms of some institutional characteristics of the uh, retail markets. No? In some cases, you would find that uh, uh, contracts for uh, gas uh, are renewed uh, very quickly in some countries. Uh, in other countries, contracts will typically uh, last for uh, one or even two years. So the transmission of the shock into the final prices uh, uh, became quite uh, quite uh, complex to, to assess. No? And on top of that, as you know, all governments uh, in the euro area implemented uh, uh, a significant uh, number of measures, to uh, fiscal measures, to mitigate the impact of uh, energy, the energy crisis on, on prices. And this complicated a little bit more, no, the whole uh, the whole analysis. No? Uh, later on, uh, we were surprised uh, on the upside uh, by the evolution of uh, of food prices. I mean, we were expecting some. A positive reaction of uh, uh, food prices uh, following the the energy crisis and so on, but the magnitude of the increase in food prices uh, went beyond uh, what uh, we would uh, expect. No? And uh, this year, as I said, in 23, uh, last year, we will publish in a few weeks' time uh, our assessment. Fortunately, I can tell you in advance that the errors, the forecasting errors in, in 23 were, were very, very small. I mean, not as small as in normal times, but of course, uh, they were significantly smaller than in 21 and 22. And, and I think it is important to uh, do this exercise. And I think also for legitimacy and credibility, it is important to be absolutely transparent with uh, uh, the errors that we make and the reasons behind these errors. And I can uh, give my full commitment that we will keep being uh, self-critical and super transparent with this. Well, in this context, um, would you agree um, with the view that uh, macroeconomic forecasting has become more difficult over time? And we had obviously uh, quite a few crises over the last 20 years, the global financial crisis, the European debt crisis, COVID, Russian invasion um, of Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Or would you say that techniques have become better, that databases have become get better, so that despite these, these shocks, um, there, there's been some improvement? 
Well, I graduated in 2004 and joined the Bank of Spain, and I remember I enjoyed three three years there of uh, some tranquility, writing uh, academic papers and so on. And then since uh, August uh, 2007, I mean, I have been living in in crisis uh, in a crisis mood. So I don't really know how it was before uh, all this sequence of of big shocks. No, but yes, it's becoming. It's becoming, I mean, it's, it's quite complicated. It's quite complicated uh, because uh, it's not just the magnitude of shocks, no? It's that uh, the evolving nature of, of these shocks, no? I mean, the pandemic shock has nothing to do in terms of the macroeconomic implications and the channels through which, through which it propagated to the macroeconomy with uh, respect to the war in Ukraine eh? or with respect to uh, bottlenecks in the international trade because of the Red Sea uh, situation these days, no? So it's, it's not just uh, that the that the global economy and the euro area economy is becoming more volatile because of the uh, occurrence of these shocks, but it's also the nature of the shocks is is uh, is so volatile. You know, that it's very difficult to anticipate uh, where we should uh, put uh, the the focus. No, for instance, for many years, this is a very a very simple example that everybody will uh, will understand. For many years, I mean, nobody uh, in the forecasting community would care very much about uh, forecasting gas prices. Why? Because they would correlate perfectly with oil prices. So we would just look at oil prices. Now, in at some point in 21, I would say in the second half of 21, and especially following the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine, we realized that we badly needed a completely new technology for understanding how uh, gas prices were uh, set and how they would uh, also be uh, determined at the uh, macroeconomic individual firm and house, uh, household levels, no? because this was absolutely critical. No? So, I mean, it's becoming, certainly it's becoming uh, very, very complicated. Uh, of course, I mean, uh, we are improving our set of, uh, of tools. Uh, we are investing in a uh, um, richer set of uh, indicators. We are very pragmatic. We exploit information coming from many, many sources. I mentioned you before the many sources that we look at uh, when thinking about wages. The same is true with respect to other, to many other uh, economic variables. Of course, we keep an eye on the, the good work uh, that many of you in the academia are uh, doing these days as well, which for us is absolutely crucial not to be in, in touch with the most recent uh, uh, academic developments in terms of macro analysis and forecasting but uh, yes it's becoming it's becoming uh, uh, complex no and also the 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 policy strategy if you wish is uh, is making the the job a little bit tougher no when when our policymakers uh, say that uh, they will follow a data driven approach a meeting by meeting approach Essentially, they are telling you that, uh, yes, incoming data and the analysis of this incoming data is absolutely crucial for uh, for the policy decisions, no? which is uh, always very stimulating for uh, those of us in uh, in this uh, in this business. But at the same time, as you can imagine, the pressure is is uh, is significant as well. No? Yeah, from my point of view, I would agree it hasn't become easier over the last 20 years. Um, and, and I guess also it has to some extent to do um, with, with fiscal policy becoming somewhat more interesting again over the, the last couple of years. I mean, there was a time when fiscal policy was just in the background and nobody really, well, some people cared, but not in terms of the um, the macroeconomic outlook. So what the ECB does when it has to forecast its uh, the fiscal stance, um, it's, it's using a large number of fiscal budgets for member states, and that is in itself not an easy task because, again, it's a moving target. 
the in Germany, the, the, the ruling of the Constitutional Court is just one example how quickly, again, the situation can change. Um, uh, and those fiscal rules that we have, they change because, um, well, uh, and it's not easy to, to get an agreement here. Um, and sometimes you have those direct changes um, that, that ad hoc come. Um, would you say that um, fiscal start or fiscal policy is another source uh, of forecasting uncertainty, a relevant one? Um, and do you think that the new rules we have in place now make will make it somewhat easier to forecast? Well, of course, uh, Dirk, uh, uh, fiscal policy is, uh, is a major uh, input in our uh, macroeconomic thinking and in our uh, macroeconomic projection exercises. No, I think uh, this is uh, something very, very natural. No, I mean here in the at the ECB and more broadly in the in the euro system, fortunately we rely on a very uh, large and uh, uh, rich set of uh, national experts on on fiscal policy. So that uh, what we incorporate in our uh, forecasting exercises is the input from uh, the, 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 the assessment of the uh, National Central Bank's experts that are very much uh, in close contact uh, with the local authorities and, and so on. No? So this, this uh, I think, enhances very much the quality of our fiscal input in the, in the forecast. Uh, and we follow also very, very clear and, and very transparent rules on, on this. No, we, we follow the so-called no policy change assumption always when incorporating fiscal measures in our macro forecast, which essentially consists on uh, only incorporating those, those fiscal measures that have uh, already been adopted legally by uh, the corresponding uh, uh, national authorities or uh, on which uh, our assessment uh, is compatible with a very high likelihood that these announcements or measures will be implemented. Eh? So we only rely on what we see, in a sense, eh? what we see uh, already uh, being approved by, by, by the national uh, authorities. No? And then, of course, uh, we perform a number of sensitivity analysis as well. No? But uh, yes, this is an important uh, element in our forecasting uh, machinery. We rely fortunately on this uh, huge network of uh, national uh, experts and again we are very transparent on what we do there because it's very important when uh, an outsider uh, interprets our forecast it's very important to know what are the the assumptions on some key elements like uh, like uh, like the fiscal uh, assumptions no? now on the on the new rules uh, that you were uh, also asking Dirk I mean I, I guess it's too early to to say uh, uh, what is going to be the impact uh, in terms of fiscal stance and what is going to to be the impact uh, for us as uh, forecasters no by the way these rules have uh, still to 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 be approved uh, formally no the the legal process is still unfolding no I mean initially <coughs> my impression is that uh, the new rules uh, may be seen as a little bit more complex than the previous ones eh? with many new elements here and there these links between fiscal policy and structural reforms and and so on so at first sight it seems that they are a, a little bit more uh, more complex no but uh, at the end uh, both in terms of uh, their effectiveness in delivering on the on the on the goals uh, but also in terms of uh, making them more or less predictable what is uh, absolutely essential uh, is the implementation of these rules no? and the enforceability of these rules. The previous rules, the previous uh, stability and growth path was probably simpler than the, the one uh, that is being discussed these days. But we know that the implementation was far from perfect. So at the end, it was quite unpredictable as well. 
So enforceability and implementation is going to be is going to be absolutely uh, key in all relevant uh, uh, dimensions. One final question on the whole fiscal side of things: um, Are you are you comfortable with the, the fiscal stance uh, with respect to debt sustainability in in some countries? Deficits are still high in some countries, given how high debt levels are. Um, is that something you you're worried about, or say, well, it's not within our remit anyway? Well, uh, I could say it's not uh, in our remit, but uh, it would not be 100 percent uh, uh, a fair answer. No, I mean, yeah, stance is not for us. I mean, the stance of uh, fiscal policy is determined by uh, by the fiscal authorities, and we take it as given eh, when we assess uh, the, the situation and the and the macroeconomic uh, outlook. So we will not comment on on it. No, and this is more for. Uh, the national uh, independent fiscal uh, uh, authorities and, and for the European Commission, of course. No? Uh, the same uh, applies a little bit uh, when when uh, uh, when comes the question about uh, fiscal sustainability. I mean, it's not uh, it's not uh, this is not within the mandate of uh, of the of the European uh, Central Bank. No. Now, having said this, as I said before, of course, I mean, fiscal stance and sustainability issues and so on are a key ingredient of any sensible macroeconomic analysis, of any sensible macroeconomic projection exercise. But sometimes also when uh, fiscal policy is likely to have an impact on inflation, uh, our attention goes up for, for, obvious, uh, for obvious reasons. No? And... Uh, over the last uh, few months and, and quarters, uh, the ECB Governing Council has been emphasizing a very clear message uh, uh, on the area of, of fiscal policy. You know? uh, when, uh, when they say that it is important that uh, euro area governments uh, roll back the fiscal measures that were implemented to, uh, uh, let's say, reduce the incidence of the, of the energy crisis, it's important that they roll uh, roll back uh, these measures uh, as soon as possible, no? Because now the prices of energy have normalized to a large extent. These prices are much lower, and keeping these uh, compensating uh, measures uh, uh, for longer than uh, strictly necessary may have a, an obvious impact on on inflation down the road, no? Because we know that uh, as soon as these measures are uh, removed, this has a positive impact on, on inflation. No? So we are a little bit uh, 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 concerned about this in the sense that we would like to see some normalization, some removal of these uh, fiscal measures, uh, not only just for uh, fiscal sustainability considerations, which are important uh, here as well, because uh, many governments are uh, using a lot of money in, this, in these measures, but also because they have a relatively direct impact on the dynamic behavior of, of inflation, which of course for us is a key is a key element. No, so at this stage, I think that the main uh, message coming from this institution on fiscal policy has to do with this relatively limited uh, uh, issue, but uh, which has potentially important implications for inflation. Yeah, very interesting. Let's see what the governments will do. So now let's have a look um, more at the process of how forecasts are produced at the ECB. So the ECB staff releases uh, the so-called macroeconomic projections once every quarter. And these forecasts are produced in an alternating manner, once by the ECB staff and once by the ECB together with the national central banks. 
and especially the forecasting rounds that involve also the national central banks are rather heavy, I'd say, in terms of the process. I mean, they involve many different forecasting teams. They require a lot of coordination for consensus building. And uh, it is uh, many people simply are involved, which, of course, complicates uh, things quite a, th a bit. So do you think that the way forecasting is currently organized at the ECB is um, efficient and also in, up to the job, if I may say, in terms of diagnosing in a timely way turning points in the cycle or perhaps in inflation dynamics. What's what's your view on this? I mean, you you inherited this process basically from your predecessors, but is there um, you know is this if you had to design it afresh, is this something you would do it this way? <laughs> Well, I mean, this is a, a question that uh, we ask, uh, at least I ask myself uh, quite uh, quite frequently. And uh, honestly, the answer that I give to myself is that I don't have a clear better option eh, than the one in, in place. No? I mean, if you think about it, yes, it's, it's a relatively complex and uh, involved uh, uh, mechanism. But, you know, this is Europe. I mean, uh, everything here is is, is complex by, by nature. Eh? We have uh, 20 member states in the in the governing council uh, plus six uh, board members so this tells you about uh, uh, the extra uh, complexity with respect to other major uh, uh, central central banks no? so yes it is complex but i think it's relatively efficient and robust in the sense that uh, the system in place complex as it is uh, makes the best possible use or close to the best possible use of the wealth of resources and knowledge and specific skills all across the euro system and this is very important because uh, the euro system is not just this building in frankfurt is the the other national central banks in the in the capitals no? which uh, as you know uh, employ very very competent uh, economists as well no? with a lot of expertise on the respective uh, economies no? so the system in place tries to to uh, to get advantage of all this uh, direct knowledge on the on the national uh, economies bringing all this knowledge uh, together yes is relatively uh, uh, complex and cumbersome at some at some point but uh, you know we have been uh, 25 years playing this uh, with this uh, this technology there is a system of uh, working groups and committees that are uh, in place to organize all this all this work independently of uh, who is leading the particular exercise, whether the ECB staff or the national central banks, the communication is always constant and very fluid uh, all over the, the, the euro system. So uh, my impression is that, yes, with some unavoidable difficulties, the system is, is overall serving pretty well the, the governing the governing council. We are still, still we are introducing some uh, improvements here and there, no? Uh, so it's not a, a purely a static uh, framework, but I think it's a framework that uh, has not an obvious uh, alternative uh, uh, arrangement, no? Uh, that uh, will uh, work uh, more efficiently and, and in a more robust way. So as a follow up to this, um, forecasting at the ECB is obviously also, as you alluded to, a way of achieving a consensus among the different national central banks, which provide very crucial input. Uh, but as economists, we, we tend to like uh, competition. Uh, we think something good and consensus uh, might not be then the, the best way uh, forward. What, what would you say of organizing competitive forecasting contests in, in which each national central bank comes up with its own euro air forecast? where the weight with which the national forecast enters, the average forecast depends on, say, past forecasting performance, kind of a 
reward uh, punishment for, for past mistakes or success. Couldn't that be simply complement to the current consensus-oriented approach? Well, it's a as a as a, as a theoretical possibility. That's an interesting uh, uh, proposal, no? But uh, I think in practice, it's, it's very difficult to implement anything like a, like a competition. No? Among other things, because uh, the way uh, the forecast is is done, when we are in front of these exercises that are uh, led by the national central banks, the system is very much uh, a, a bottom-up uh, one. Eh? So what we get in Frankfurt from the national central banks is not a forecast about uh, the euro area economy as a whole. It's their forecast about their own economy. Eh? And then it is uh, for us to, to aggregate everything, to provide uh, the experts in the national central banks with a common set of uh, technical assumptions, to discuss with them, to challenge uh, uh, mutually the, the outcome of this, uh, of this uh, national central banks exercises and so on. But they don't uh, provide, and hence they don't compete for the best number for the whole euro area. Eh? So, um, in this respect, is uh, almost by construction is not a, it's, it's a cooperative game more than a, a non-cooperative uh, uh, game. No. So, uh, and again, I think is is working is working well. There are a number of uh, uh, um, uh, checking points, no, and uh, mutual challenge, as I as I said. And uh, we keep uh, questioning ourselves no, as, as, as a system. No? What are we doing uh, better? What can uh, uh, be done better? Uh, exploiting uh, new uh, data sets, new modeling technologies, and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the system, as I said before, is working, is working relatively well. Uh, still, in, a, in an environment that uh, institutionally is, is complex and economically, given all this uncertainty, has been quite, uh, quite challenging. But overall, I think that what we have is is a reasonable uh, compromise and solution. Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, in my you know, as a closing question, I want to come back to a somewhat more structural component that is uh, also very relevant for forecasting, and that is productivity growth. So productivity dynamics are both relevant for the dynamics of output and the dynamics of inflation, and thus also for assessing whether or not, for instance, wage dynamics are consistent with the ECB's 2% uh, inflation objective. And it has now become clear that the productivity numbers that we get in the euro area have been rather weak following the COVID pandemic. And this is certainly not very good news, neither for growth nor inflation. So. Does the ECB have an assessment about what's holding productivity back and perhaps, you know, what the outlook for productivity is going forward? Yeah, no, that's that's a critical uh, that's a critical question, eh, Klaus. I mean, uh, for the very reasons that uh, that you mentioned and not the least because uh, productivity is a key element in the unit labor cost, which are uh, critical for inflation. Uh, it's not just wages, but uh, productivity matters very much. No. And what you said is absolutely right. I mean, uh, productivity has been very, very weak, labor productivity in the in the euro area. Uh, and this is not uh, good news for uh, growth in principle and certainly are not good news for inflation because it's pushing up a uh, unit labor cost. But it's probably a reflection of uh, a very good uh, news and uh, very positive uh, signals from the labor market in terms of employment. I mean, let's let's emphasize this. Uh, growth has been very weak, but uh, the overall level of employment is is quite uh, is quite high. And actually, the latest uh, data on unemployment, going back to November last year, 
uh, were consistent with unemployment being at the near to the historical lowest level of uh, 6.4%. No? So uh, we are employing many people. It is true that uh, the the individual productivity, the average productivity, has has been uh, uh, very very weak, and we have explored several hypotheses. No, one has to do with uh, what economists uh, call labor hoarding. That is, uh, firms uh, being relatively reluctant to uh, fire workers in spite of some weakening of their own demand. Because in a situation in which uh, the labor market uh, remains so tight, it's very difficult for them to attract new talent. No, So it seems that they are willing to uh, live for some time with uh, more people, more workers than strictly needed, because they anticipate that if they fire someone, then it will be very difficult to attract uh, new talent once uh, their demand uh, uh, recovers. No? And we have some evidence, especially based on, uh, on surveys, that uh, are uh, um, underlying this idea of uh, uh, an important ongoing labor hoarding uh, motive. No? Some colleagues here are uh, working these days on a very, very interesting project that uh, essentially uh, has concluded that uh, those firms that have been able to enjoy relatively higher profits, profit margins during this uh, post-pandemic period, are firms that uh, have uh, 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 incurred in more intense labor hoarding. So, in a sense, this relatively high level of profits in some firms is being used to some extent to keep employment relatively, relatively uh, uh, high. No, and as you keep more people than strictly needed, this means that okay, this is good for employment, but it's not that good for uh, for productivity. No. Other aspects, other uh, potential hypotheses uh, that we have uh, looked at uh, uh, have to do with uh, public employment, for instance. Public employment in the major uh, economies of the euro area went up uh, very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic, but in most cases it has not gone back to the pre-pandemic levels. No? And what we know is that many of these new jobs in the public sector were uh, jobs uh, with relatively low skills. So uh, through a composition effect, this is probably pushing down the aggregate uh, level of uh, productivity. No? One aspect that uh, is attracting uh, much attention, and we have uh, said that uh, on this in the in the past, has to do with uh, sick leaves. I mean, we are not experts, of course, uh, here at the Central Bank on these uh, uh, health-related issues, but the information that we get from some uh, large uh, euro area countries is that uh, sick leaves have increased significantly. Since the uh, since the end of the pandemic, not only during the pandemic, of course, but after the the pandemic, no, with some numbers that uh, would be consistent with uh, some uh, potentially material uh, effects on the on the labor market, uh, and with an obvious uh, clear negative implication in terms of uh, of productivity, no. And the last uh, issue, no, uh, that uh, we are uh, evaluating uh, in trying to understand this this key variable has to do with uh, the composition of the inflows of new workers into the labor force. No, I mean, it's, as I said before, uh, it's undeniably positive that uh, the, the supply of labor in the euro area has been very elastic in the last few years. Uh, many people are joining the labor force. Uh, we didn't have anything like the great uh, resignation in the US. Immigration flows have been very, very strong. But at the same time, this means that Let's say the marginal worker that is joining the labor force uh, now is possibly 
uh, entering the labor force with a relatively low level of productivity. Eh? These are normally not all, of course, but the prototypical individual that is joining the, the labor force uh, recently was uh, relatively young people with uh, no higher skills that would join some jobs in uh, relatively low value added services. So this again creates some negative composition effect on, on productivity. No? So bottom line, this is a key issue for us, Klaus, and uh, we keep exploring some of these uh, some of these hypotheses. I think this this issue of the labor market uh, is the reflection of several factors uh, playing a role there. And uh, something that is quite interesting is that uh, some of the of these uh, relatively puzzling uh, features of the uh, evolution of the labor market in the last few years are not exclusive to the euro area we are seeing some of these phenomena in other major advanced economies but also in some emerging market uh, economies no? the issue of labor shortages is something that is uh, becoming uh, absolutely generalized uh, in very different uh, economies no? uh, so we keep uh, working hard on the labor market because it's essential as we said at the beginning of the talk, uh, for both the nominal and the and the real part of the of the economy. So I'm going to attempt a, a short summary of all what you said, which will inevitably be uh, a bit crude. But anyway, so economic cycle, where do we stand? Um, you think uh, some recovery is, is likely. Um, and in fact, positive growth rates in Q1 should be expected. Main reason is real wages will push up uh, income and therefore we see some consumption. And of course, from the external side, we get some support after rather weak export growth, weaker than what, what say, global growth would have suggested. Wage dynamics, key factor. We touched upon it many times here in, in this conversation uh, for the for the medium term outlook, a crucial factor. Inflation in 2024, unlike 2023, 2022, will be a domestic phenomenon, and this is where wages, but also uh, profit growth or labor, uh, profits will will uh, feature um, as, as a key factor. Um, you think it will slow, um, and in fact, the evidence you have so far, though, it's it's just tentative evidence, is, is uh, consistent with this kind of Goldilocks scenario, not too strong, not too weak. Uh, wage growth. What can we learn from past forecasting errors? Um, and you said that the ECB does indeed in undertake um, a systematic post-mortem um, and, and find uh, and to identify the mistakes. Um, inflation errors, uh, to focus on that, were mostly due to oil price, gas uh, shocks, bottlenecks, stuff that is very difficult to uh, forecast. Uh, but then, uh, and that's an added complication, how this transmits into inflation uh, was yet another problem where you said was was crucial in, in what well, was an, an important factor uh, in explaining the error of, of uh, forecasting inflation. Has forecasting become more difficult? Yeah, quite complicated. Uh, the size of the shocks, uh, but also the difference in nature of these shocks um, uh, makes uh, the whole exercise more complicated than, than it used to be, though I guess it was always complicated. Fiscal stance, fiscal policy is a major input in your, uh, in your assessment, um, and you have a lot of national experts that help. Um, the new rules uh, for uh, fiscal rules too early to know um, what they um, imply, though uh, you think they're rather complicated, a bit more complicated. So that will make also more complicated uh, to assess what what it what fiscal stance implies. Um, forecasting competition, um, we you, you said maybe in principle or theoretical, in, interesting, but in practice uh, not not really clear how to do that um, and 
is there any other way to improve the forecasting framework? Um, you said, well, um, it's, it's not obvious to you how to do it in the status quo. As obviously, uh, given that this is Europe, always an important anchor in all that. Um, but important that a lot of national central banks provide input because they have a lot of uh, experts and, and you would miss out uh, if that wasn't the case. Finally, productivity growth, key input factor as well in your forecast because of uh, in growth dynamics, but also um, uh, inflation. And here, the strength of employment seems to be one, one curiosity or one puzzle. So, so you mentioned several hypotheses, labor hoarding, uh, sick leave, public employment, uh, immigration of rather low skilled workers. All that seems to have played a role. Um, but uh, at the same time, it's good news that the, the labor market is so strong in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Was that a fair summary of all what you said, though crude? Absolutely, it was uh, very clear, very exhaustive and uh, totally fair. Yeah, thank you, Dirk. Great job. Well, Thank you again for your time, Oscar. It was very interesting and, and we hope at some point to have you again as a guest on the show. Be my pleasure. Thanks a lot.